Welcome to The Neutral Ground. This week, my guest is Dr. Jonathan Greenaway. Jonathan is an academic, writer, and content creator. He has a PhD from the Manchester Center for Gothic Studies and is the author of Theology, Horror, and Fiction, a reading of the Gothic 19th century, the book that we're going to be discussing quite a bit in this episode. He is the co-host of the popular podcast Horror Vanguard, which discusses horror film, radical politics, and cultural theory, and is the author of a forthcoming book entitled Capitalism, A Horror Story. We're going to take a look in this episode at his book, Theology, Horror, and Fiction. And uh, I'm excited about that because this is an area that connects with my own research interests as well. You'll hear some familiar names and characters like Milton Satan, Charles Dickens' Scrooge, Frankenstein, and even a bit of Bram Stoker's Dracula as well. We have a fascinating conversation about how Frankenstein's monster is really craving theology more than just answers. I do my best to make a simple plot from a Henry James short story sound as convoluted as a Christopher Nolan film, and I try my best to convince people why the film Alien Covenant is a better movie than we give it credit for, although I'm sure I probably won't convince many of that. Remember to hit the subscribe and or follow button, leave a kind comment and or rating where applicable, and follow me on my social media accounts if for no other reason than for a good joke at my ineptitude. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Greenaway. John, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Fantastic. It's my pleasure. So today we're going to talk quite a bit about your book, the title of which is Theology, Horror, and Fiction, a reading of the Gothic 19th century. Before we kind of really dive into some meaty concepts here, can you clarify a little bit for the audience kind of the main thesis of your book, this relationship between Gothic, the Gothic and theology? Yeah, so um, so really the book is predicated upon a fairly simple uh, claim, which is that this very specific mode of literary production, uh, which emerges in in the English novel in, the, in around the mid 1700s, um, and reaches its high point, um, depending on where you want to draw the line in the in the early to mid nineteenth century, has a very particular concern with the language and theme and motif of religion, of, of theology. Um, and the, the very simple kind of wager that underpins the book is that this is not simply a kind of aesthetic device, but actually has genuine um, kind of discursive content. These novels are, whether explicitly or not, engaged in a kind of public cultural theology. Uh, this is not the same thing to kind of retroactively baptize Gothic novels to say that they were really you know, all along were, were, were kind of Christian culture, um, but is to try and take the uh, theological interest that is latent and explicit within those texts seriously on its own terms. Can you, can you talk a little bit about then, um, why do you believe it, it hadn't been taken seriously? What, what was it about the culture maybe that wasn't taking the theology more seriously? Well, I, I think culturally at the time, they certainly were uh, uh, taken seriously. But really, I, I, it was written out of, of a kind of frustration with uh, English literary criticism that's become very interested in the Gothic since, arguably since the 1970s, where it's kind of first emerged as a sort of subset of, of literary studies or of cultural studies. Um, and there is a tendency to... Uh, read the theological as psychoanalytic uh, in literary criticism. And what, uh, because literary critici criticism as a field is not necessarily that comfortable talking about something that's seen as kind of non-materialistic as, as theology and religion. Um, so, so really I was trying to sort of offer a, um, a in retrospect, uh, offer a very kind of gentle kind of corrective to a an overemphasis on the psychoanalytic that often translates what are very explicit 
uh, language and themes and tropes, motifs and concerns into a, into a psychoanalytic register, when in fact they're very clearly written in a in a theological and religious register, and it's very important to kind of take that seriously. Something that that immediately came to my mind, even when I was just reading through the the introduction, was uh, Henry James's short story, The Jolly Corner, and very briefly because uh, it's a little bit clunky to even go through, uh, the protagonist, Spencer Bryden, comes back home where he's got to come face-to-face with kind of the, the specter of who he might have been. And the reason why your work brought that to my mind was because there's a part where this protagonist ends up in the lap of this woman that he had cared about quite a bit until he left and went away to Europe for like 30 years and it's James setting up this almost uh, Michelangelo Pieta moment. And what he says, though, in that moment, this character wakes back up after fainting. And the character tells this woman, you literally brought me back to life. Now, why that's interesting to me is that term literal or literally. re phrases the way that we look at that story it in the in terms of Alice Staverton that character becomes in a kind of catholic poetics sense mediatrix here and it's because of that one word now if you don't take the theology there seriously i don't think you get that reading um yeah completely and i think it's important to point out that reading reading these texts as let's let's say occupying a, an ambivalent relationship to the theological and religious does not exclude um, it doesn't exclude or negate other readings right the, the point is not to reinscribe uh, a kind of theological literary poetics as the ultimate master discourse that actually unlocks what all of these texts mean um, but actually to suggest that this often very marginal, kind of deliberately transgressive, deliberately shocking, deliberately lowbrow cultural form is engaged in something very interesting that a kind of uh, sort of theological snobbery almost doesn't want to notice. Was there a particular text that jumpstarted this idea for you that made you want to look into this more? Um, I suppose really it's, uh, it's, uh, Shelley's Frankenstein is, uh, the two bookends, two key texts of the book are, um, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and, uh, Stoker's Dracula. And, uh, what, what I found kind of endlessly fascinating about, um, Frankenstein's creature in the novel is that, uh, he talks, he talks about Milton, uh, Milton Milton opens Paradise Lost by saying that the purpose of the poem is to explain, uh, to justify the ways of God to man, right? It is a explicitly theological apologetics, um, but done in the form of poetry. And what makes Fra- Frankenstein's creature so terrifying to, to Victor is not that this is a monster, that this is actually um, a, a kind of eloquent, religiously, historically, even legally fluent uh, speaker so the whole the whole horror of Frankenstein is not you know it's not some tired parable about you know man playing God but it's about the actual awesome creative responsibility of what does it mean to bring something into being um and the whole the whole tragedy of Victor Frankenstein is his inability uh is 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 not his inability to accomplish his goal but his inability to actually um, recognize the responsibilities that that goal carries with it. So it was um, it was reading Frankenstein actually in the first year of my undergraduate degree, um, where I was suddenly sort of very aware that this is um, this is this is a, this is about this is religious. This is this is if theology is the discourse that concerns itself with uh, things of ultimate concern, um, the Gothic novels and contemporary horror even more so is deeply theologically invested. 
this brings us nicely into the the first chapter of the book where you talk about Frankenstein and and you lean heavily on Frankenstein and and Milton Paradise Lost and you 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 kind of brought this up a little bit at the end but you you make a, a wonderful wonderful move here in this chapter where you you talk about it's not that Frankenstein's creature wants necessarily just answers he's seeking theology mm-hmm. and that's a very very different thing than what we might usually usually talk about with that book, right? He doesn't just want to to know why he exists. He needs a justified and almost sanctified existence. He needs mm-hmm. a theology around it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I thought it was a, a great, great port, part of the book. Well, uh, the 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 section of the novel here is um, their conversation upon the mountainside, um, where they, they retreat into the Swiss Alps. Um, and Frankenstein's creature relays his story, um, his narrative within the narrative itself. Um, and the, 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 the deliberate echo of Milton is, I, I should have been thy Adam, right? I he deliberately places himself within this um, dualistic relationship of, of man and God. And the whole point is not simply that that solves an existential problem but it kind of solves the a, an even deeper level of of of, uh, of of questioning it's it's about where does one belong in the wider networks of existence within which we are enmeshed right adam walks in the garden with god that question is solved until sin is introduced in in genesis um the the, the anger of frankenstein's creature is that even if even if we read theology allegorically right as a kind of proto history um, he doesn't go through that historical stage of development, right? He doesn't have the um, the awareness of where he fits within the network of existence itself, right? What what does he want? Is that he wants recognition from that which brought him into being? If we can kind of think about this in in terms of let's say a kind of Hegelian theology, he wants to be recognized, but he also wants um, a connection with a wider network of existence. Because what is it that he asks? Victor to do. He asks Victor for a mate, someone, someone who is like him, someone that can kind of share the the same mutuality of recognition that co-constitutes identity. Um, and Victor revolts. You know, God is God is dead in in the creature's metaphysics, right? God has abandoned his responsibilities, um, and so the only answer is to to take revenge. Um, and when you think about it that way, it's a profoundly um, uh, it, it raises the stakes of the story, I think, right? It raises it to not just be uh, a kind of piece of fantasy, but kind of speaks to very deep, um, almost arguably universal concerns, right? The, the two big poetic influences are Dante and, and Milton. Um, and, and thus, fundamentally, the Bible is, is the, big, the big kind of poetic influence. And it's tied up in all of these emergent discourses around science um which i think often obscure what what is really going on at the core of the novel yeah and you have this this heideggerian throneness uh in there as well where where the creature just really finds himself because he doesn't have the other part of the theology of the bible is is creating that experience the story of what's happening. And as you mentioned, he doesn't have that story even from which to reference and try to understand his state of being and and why he's feeling this kind of existential suffering uh, be, because yeah. he lacks that. One of my one of my favorite quotes, which I think I use in the book, is um, the, the philosopher and kind of atheist theologian Simon Critchley, who says that our fundamental ontological condition is to be in debt not in an economic sense, but we are literally, we're thrown into the world. We have no choice about the matter. We have no choice about who we are thrown into being with. And without without our dependence on others, none of us would ever survive. Fundamentally, uh, our, our existence is at its, at, its, at its most basic level is fundamentally social, right? Because, um, you know, without networks of care, we'd, we'd never survive. And the other, the other point that I wanted to flag up is um, I talk a little bit about Augustinian notions of evil, um, which is that Victor's fear of the creature is almost his ontological excess, right? It's this stitched together 
monstrous progeny, to use Mary Shelley's phrase, this the bodies of 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 the poor and the working class that Victor has stolen from the you know with his profane fingers, um, and it has there is a kind of excess to this body. It's it is a sign whose meaning overspills, right? Its signification overspills the limits of the sign. And um, in contrast, Victor is this very hollow creature, very, very ontologically uh, brittle. Um, and this is the kind of Augustinian point. So evil is not a kind of positive force in the world, right? Um, evil is an, is an absence. And what is this? What is Victor's withdrawing away? This ab- absenting the, the the responsibilities of of the father, as it were, if not a kind of quasi Augustinian evil. I'm going to make a, a clumsy turn here, but you, you made me think of it. Um, so, ha- have you seen the movie Alien Covenant? I haven't. No, I haven't. You have not. Okay, this is a, a, a you know that came after Prometheus. And uh, most people that I've come into just absolutely hate it. <laughs> they hate the film. <laughs> However, I love it. I loved it. And it's precisely because you have this android, David, who at the very beginning, they set up this scene where he's questioning his creator. And 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 they don't try to really hide it. You know, there are references to um, romantic authors and references to Milton throughout. But his his main problem is trying to figure out how do I connect myself with some sense of story, some sense of theology, some sort of rules for why I exist. And so he creates the aliens, the face huggers of the alien world as a means of establishing a theology that he can attach himself to. And I just found that uh, you made me think of that as well in that kind of fascinating way. Uh, Let me, let me, Let's run into Paradise Lost here a, a little bit too, because people sometimes overlook the fact that Milton Satan has a creative process as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He creates. Can you talk a little bit about how you connect Paradise Lost and Milton Satan with this as well? Well, I think this is the point, right? Um, the the classic point uh, is that Milton, is it, isn't it Blake who says that Milton was at the devil's party without knowing it? And, yes. <laughs> Um, and it's precisely, precisely because uh, Milton's devil is creative, right? Um, once again, God is is strangely very kind of dist- a distant figure in, in Paradise Lost, you know? Um, and so Milton has to kind of step in and ventriloquize to sort of fill the gap, as it were. Um, and I think this, this, this kind of brings up a, a sort of broader point. So there are two sort of levels of horror that we could operate on when we're talking about the theological, which is like, the absence of God, which is in itself terrifying because you're then ontologically and epistemologically stranded in a universe without any kind of grounding. And the the opposite of that is uh, the divine or the transcendent or the immaterial being far stranger than our limited conceptual frameworks might allow for. Um, but in the context of Satan, I think it's very simple, which is the 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 great the great uh question that satan poses in in paradise lost which is is it not better is it not better to rule in heaven than uh, to rule in hell than to serve in heaven is it not better to create oneself than to be given meaning by an absent and uncaring uh father figure um and the the creature makes itself monstrous right uh, it chooses to chooses violence and revenge um but the the kind of desperately worrying thing is that that choice is not entirely unreasonable you know that's that's the that's the very fine line where we have to kind of be confronted with the fact that the monstrous is kind of dangerously close in fact worryingly close to what we would consider kind of normative humanity yeah the the initial reaction of most you know readers i would say or at least majority of readers is an immediate emotional attachment to Milton Satan mm-hmm. for, especially in book four, when he starts talking about the reason uh, how he's particularly trapped within this world of both knowing that he does not feel sorry for his position, 
he feels like he's in his in his world doing the right thing. And yet at the same time, he also knows that he he lacks the luxury of trying to explain that position to God. He can't mm-hmm. do it because, you know, this knows my punisher. God knows mm-hmm. that he there there is no real way back. So what do you do at the same time? Because Milton Satan it reveals that he still very much craves, though, mm-hmm. being a part of this, like a part of that the the story. He just refuses the part that's been written for him. He wants to be author. I mean, this is the thing, right? This is the point at which, you know, um, Augustine would say, "Evil is willed. Evil is evil is." Uh, rather um it is it has to be there has to be something within you that is missing in order that that's kind of submission is not possible um terry eagleton has a really useful short book called on evil um which talks about evil in literary characters as being this kind of willed disobedience right the created with ultimate freedom but that freedom is uh, is the freedom to overturn the universe itself if you so choose um, and and choosing even though you know it will lead to damnation, and even though you know it will cut you off from the very source and ground and possibility of being itself, you know, that's the ultimate tragedy of Satan, right, in, in Paradise Lost, which is knowing all that, we, all that it costs, knowing all that one ha- is necessarily giving up, but in a moment of kind of glorious, almost messianic, uh, uh, will choosing to do so anyway, you know it's 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 very much the kind of it's the cosmic equivalent of overturning the board game, knowing that everything is going to be destroyed, but all of it will be worth it for that one glorious moment of seeing the pieces fly through the air. So, do you think then, if if Milton Satan knew that he could have more agency? in writing his part in this, do you think that he might not have gone through with what he did? This is kind of a, not a silly question, but, uh, but an interesting question that I hadn't thought of before. Well, I to kind of rephrase the question. um, Sure. Is, is there salvation even for the monstrous, right? You know, is because I feel like that's the, that's, that's sort of what this is driving at. Um, I, I gave a paper based on this first chapter to a theology and religious studies department. And one of them asked, um, so are you saying there'll be, there'll be monsters in heaven? Uh, uh, to which I responded, well, I hope so. <laughs> um, because, um, uh, because to, to do otherwise requires some rethinking of really foundational assumptions about how theology as a discipline works, right? Um, I, I guess... I guess I guess my answer would be I I would hope so but I don't know. <laughs> well, even if we take Milton, you know what he sets up there, right there you have the 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 ladder sequence when the ladder comes down and your the question is is it is it reaching out for mm-hmm. Lucifer to come back or it does it in some way serve as a kind of mockery because we know what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to look at it more as the, the reaching out and saying, you can, there is a way for you to come back. Now, that would mean that Satan is in heaven. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's... I mean, th- th- this is a super interesting uh, theological question. Um, Adam Kotzko has a brilliant book called The Prince of This World um, on the political theology of neoliberalism talking about how this was very hotly debated. This was enormously hotly debated. Um, and there was, for a very brief window in the history of theology, the, possi- the, the, the possibility of a, th- of a theory of atonement that would extend even into hell. Um, uh, it, it comes up quite a lot in uh, the writing of uh, Anselm of Canterbury. This idea that... Um, Atonement was not simply substitutionary, but was universal. And I think that's quite, a, there's uh, the next kind of project that I'm working on is, is about, um, it indirectly touches on the philosophy of hope. And to me, this is one of the very kind of very hopeful things about the Gothic and horror, which is that 
uh, in the confrontation with monsters, there, there, there is a kind of redemption, right? It's quite a, it's a very costly one, and it's often a very ambiguous one. You know, think of the ending of Frankenstein with the creature um, basically mirror, mirroring Adam and Eve cast out at the end of Paradise Lost, wandering, wandering into darkness, wandering and lost in the ice. Um, but there is possibility in that, right? There is, there isn't a a definitive. Kind of the curtain, the curtain falls, but damnation is never final. Something that I that I'll do with my my students oftentimes as an exercise is I'll have them create uh, a monster for the times, mm-hmm. and we do that because we talk about how monsters often reflect us, our state of mind, things that we're struggling with, right? Things that we might need to defeat or things that expose what we're most concerned about. So, you know, things like zombies and vampires and all, all these different different things. What what you're saying here in terms of the hope, of course, is is fascinating because we we actually in some ways we need to know that there can be monsters in heaven mm-hmm. or what we at least determined on the temporal plane on on earth as monsters, they wouldn't be monsters in heaven but that would have just been our classification of them. Mm-hmm. When you extend that idea, you realize we are monsters in many ways. Yeah, the monsters are us. Monster, yeah. Monsters are, are entirely us. Um, it, monster, it's, it's Latin roots, it translates as to, to show or to warn. They are these, they are signposts on the, on the ontological edges of subjectivity. Uh, and they point outwards to something that's beyond us, but they are also a revelation of what is what already is. So, like there, there have to be there have to be monsters in heaven because if there there aren't, that heaven is almost certainly empty. <laughs> you you talk in your book also when you you start to get a little bit more specific in terms of the uh, uh, religious doctrines when you get into the the chapter on Calvinism. And you, you make an interesting connection here between Calvinism and the need for ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah. And so a couple of things that come up quite a lot when you talk about Calvinism is um, total depravity, uh, limited atonement, uh, and the uh, uh, and the kind of absence of free will. You know, if you're going to, if you're a very strict Calvinist, you have to accept that certain people the vast, vast majority are going to hell, and there really isn't anything you can do about that. However, the point that I try and draw attention to is is a slightly, uh, maybe slightly more subtle point in Calvinist epistemology, which is a split um, in the the physical world as being essentially deceptive, because it has to be constantly compared to the immutable and um, unchanging and completely reliable word. So the word is eternal, completely trustworthy. The world is deceptive. And what this creates is a, is a kind of very powerful ambiguity in how the world appears to be on the physical plane, um, but how the Calvinist would read the world, as it were, on the theological plane. And a lot of this uh, um, circles around um, James Hogg's um, absolutely incredible novel, The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, um, which is all about the dangerous ways in which this kind of slippage between those two states creates a huge amount of uncertainty as to the question of what is real. Um, if everything you see is potentially deceptive, and if the world and the word are in conflict, then what do you do? Um, and and uh, Hogg's answer is, it's an, it, it would drive you insane. It would drive you to madness, um, because how could it do anything else? And within that space of uncertainty, though, or ambiguity, is is also a, a wonderful opportunity for strengthening. I think your your spirit and strengthening your theological resolve as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But in, in a in a way, as to so, there's an example I use of um, 
uh, uh, an infamous story about um, an early Puritan colonist who would torture uh, those who are seen as being sinners, right? So the point is to disfigure the body in such a way as it mirrors the state of the soul. So you, you, it can that ambiguity can actually, um, you know, be used for kind of upbuilding one's one's own theological senses, but it can often be used as a way of like justifying uh, very brutal violence. You know, um, the annihilationist language of uh, Jonathan Edwards' famous uh, sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," is is driven at the idea of making people aware of their fundamental uh, contingency. You know, th- there, there's a, there is a sword hanging over you every day, right now. Even if you're not aware of it, it's there and it's going to send you straight and irretrievably to hell, which is terrifying, right? It's, it's, it, is, it, is, it is a theology of horror. Melville... Herman Melville wouldn't probably be considered, he has gothic moments or gothic tendencies. He's more on the romantic end, but it made me think of how he wrestles with this as well. He was, you know, brought up in a Dutch reformed Calvinistic setting and how that influenced his own writing in terms of that, it's called like kind of that liminal space of where you could go either to that losing your mind in this but but Melville uses it, he wrestles with this in such a way that you can almost see that little bit of, of a loss of, I don't want to say reality, that's a bit too harsh maybe, but but the, the loss of that scaffold, let's say, in his in in his, especially even in his letters that he writes. Yeah, th- I this is this is something that comes up a lot in um the American Gothic, right? Um Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, the, the classic example here is the short story Young Goodman Brown or The Minister's Veil, which is another, just a great, just an amazing short story. Um, the House of the Seven Gables, in a way, as well, again, has this interest in that slippage between what is and what you believe the world to be. I think it's a, um, also um, Carwin the Billiquist, uh, another, you know, kind of foundational text of of um, the American Gothic, it's is very much predicated on this idea of like the world is fundamentally uncertain, right? So the whole point, and a lot of this is tied up in the early days of American colonialism, right? The world is, appears as both Eden and this terrifying threat that has to be conquered. Uh, Goodman Brown goes goes to walk in the woods and fears that there might be uh, Indians and devils behind every tree, right? So you, you're in simultaneously this kind of Edenic paradise, but at the same time and in the same moment, it's also, it's dangerous, it's hostile, it's, it's, full, of de- it's full of devils and the supernatural and it isn't yet controlled. Yeah, and, and Goodman Brown's breakdown completely at the end reveals that he has seen this kind of chaos. He's seen this. And what happens is you end up withdrawing from, from at least how we normally see reality, which is interaction with others and interacting with the world around you. He withdraws so much that you also, when you think about it even further in doing so, he withdraws even from his faith as well, right? I mean, he loses his faith, obviously, but but there's a complete withdrawal from humanity there. Yeah, how do you go back? How do you go back? Like he's he's he sees through the ambiguity, right? Because it, it the the resolution of the ambiguity, one way or the other, is actually maybe even worse, right? <laughs> it's fine to live in the tension because tension and contradictions like that are creative. They they're dynamic. But when you when you uh, see through it and encounter, you know the supernatural in its true state, of course you would you would withdraw. How, what else could you possibly do? Um, and that and that 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 is even worse than having to live with the fear of, you know, what is the world compared to what I believe it to be. I hadn't thought about it that way. The uh, the necessity of tension as actually a means of creating stability. 
you you this kind of leads in also to this another topic you discuss in the book, which is fear and the Victorian novel. And something that I do, I'll I'll read Dickens Christmas Carol once a year. I love it. I'll read it, you know, right around Christmas time. And I'm always a bit taken aback by how much of the theology of it gets removed by the adaptations. And specifically, what you brought to my mind was thinking about Marley and the ghost. And I hadn't thought about it this way before. We tend to feel sorry for Marley. He's in his chains and all these things. But in actuality, God has granted him a type of mercy there. Because if we recall, again, this doesn't usually get shown except for in the Alistair Sim version. I remember it there. One of the reasons or one of the ways that the ghosts suffer so is because they can no longer intervene or intercede in the lives of those who are living to help them out. And so Marley's ability to intervene here on Scrooge's behalf is actually an extension of a divine mercy. Yeah, enormously so. Enormously so. Um, this idea that actually uh, the supernatural is uh, is an act of, action of divine mercy is is something that is quite it's actually fairly common in a lot of like the late nineteenth century writing. Um, it's either that or it's a kind of new religious movement or a cult that's quite dangerous. But the alternative is like uh, ghosts or hauntings as I suppose I suppose an opportunity is something that really doesn't get discussed very much. No, and and certainly not yeah, not maybe this will also lead in we can connect this together also with Dracula as well. The so the the pop cultural versions of the vampire and all the all these different things, right? The Twilights and and Underworld and all, all that stuff. They If they do, and I think this actually goes back to your main thesis as well, if they do bring in the theology, it very much seems kind of like a trope or it seems like they're throwing it in for a kind of aesthetic purpose. But in Bram Stoker's world, the theology plays a very important role in Dracula. Can you talk a little bit about that connection there of the theology? Uh, Well, Maybe the most maybe the most immediate example is right in the beginning of the novel. Harker's writing in his diary, um, just before he arrives at the castle, and he's staying at an inn, and an old woman offers him a, a rosary and a crucifix, and he says that he's a God-fearing Englishman, right? <laughs> which is uh, which is a, this is a very old thing in in the English Gothic novel. There's always a contrast between Europe, which is radical both political and religiously Catholic and then kind of very sober, sensible, um, you know, Protestant England, but no, he takes it anyway. He, he, he's, he's wearing a crucifix and it's so it's this, it's this very strange syncretism almost this combination of, you know, a God fearing Protestant Englishman who's taking on uh, a Catholic or Orthodox bit of religious wear. And this gets ramped up through the movie as, as you know, they return the crew. They call themselves the crew of light. Uh, and they return to, to Eastern Europe with uh, American Winchester rifles and Catholic communion wafers. Um, so it's, it's, this, it's this kind of melding, this fusion of very, very, um, very, very old Catholic and, and Orthodox religion uh, with very contemporary American and uh British Empire's technology, so it's 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 pr- like there's there's another great moment where Mina realizes that she has the mark. Off. She's burned by the communion wafer uh, after being bitten by Dracula, uh, and it's 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 um, it's almost like a you know my God my God why have you forsaken me? She says you know God cannot bear to look upon me. Um, so Dracula is not simply an economic threat, not simply a kind of threat to British imperialism. But it's actually this kind of destabilizing signifier, uh, which has to be combated by drawing all of these uh, both practical, uh, technological and religious and theological resources together. And and you have that mark of Cain 
as well, you know, playing in the background here too, that you're forever, once you're touched by this, you're forever touched by it. There's this idea that there is, there is no going back uh, at that moment and how horrifying that, that would actually be. It, th- there may be something to this, maybe not, but it also makes me think of when you strip away that, that theology underpinning, do you end up creating two different kind of one seems without the theology it seems like you're creating monster you're creating this monster but with the theology it seems like you are creating something uh much more terrifying because the monster you fear not who can he who can destroy the body fear he who can destroy both body and spirit right so you've got the monster can can kill your body destroy you but the with the theology you have something that can destroy spirit and body and in many ways, that makes it, I think, a much more horrific figure. Yeah, what is it that uh, Van Helsing says? I want you to believe, he says. You know, uh, he's talking to he's talking to a doctor, um, and he says, "No, I don't. This isn't this isn't a matter of kind of very limited rationalist modes of inquiry. I want you to I want you to believe. I want you to understand this as 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 a matter of faith and not just as a matter of science." And I think. I think really the, the the point that I, I try and bring up in that last chapter, which is on Frankenstein, um, uh, Dorian Gray and Jekyll and Hyde, is that the fantasy eclogothic is kind of wrestling with the uneradicable nature of the the kind of numinous. Right, this is a we're in an, a, in a discursive age of degeneration, post-Darwinian religious controversy. Uh, the first genuinely serious uh, attempts to sort of delegitimize, or, or not not delegitimize. I think religion increasingly becomes a singular discourse among many other discourses, right? So, but at the same time, there are elements to these gothic novels which are absolutely concerned with you know evolution, crime, these 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 other emergent contemporary discourses, but within it a lot of the the fear is grounded on very very deep seated uh and you know theological anxieties that can't be explained solely within strictly materialist terms you you bring up jekyll and hyde and of course it's it part of it is part of the fear in that is that you something man made could simply destroy who you are destroy your your very essence of who you are, your soul even, in many ways. That again kind of always ties back a little bit to, uh, to Shelley and Victor Frankenstein as well, this idea that can, can a human being make something theological without, without destroying as well the, the uh, let's say, the, the higher order theology coming down from godlike being is it even possible to do that yes this is the point right you know if you could if you could what would you what would you do what would you get away with if there were no consequences this is what motivates henry jekyll right this idea of he he kind of talks uh very uh delicately about certain appetites and wants that that this respectable bourgeois doctor might have um and it's it's this idea of all of these man-made ideas, this idea of kind of civility and respectability are frighteningly in, impermanent, right? It takes very little, you know, the the the, uh, the 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 crystalline mixture is described as kind of this tiny thing that sort of just pushes you through a very very permeable, worryingly permeable kind of state. Um, and you encounter the kind of, I suppose in a way, you ca- encounter the realities of your own soul. Yeah, and, and there is, there's just a tremendous amount of fear that something so simple could take you out of, of that kind of spiritual context, almost seemingly too without the presence of, of um, something that can pull you out of it, something divine that can also keep you out of it at the same time. In other words, where where is divine intervention to remove you from that moment? It 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 never quite seems to be there. Or there's no there's no other than someone saying you're messing with godly powers, 
there never seems to be anything stopping you from doing so. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This 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 notion of, uh, you know, who was it who says, you know, if God is dead, everything is permitted. Uh, it's um, it's uh, Dostoevsky, I believe, right? This this notion that actually all of this, all of these kind of new discourses, do not kind of anchor or ground being in any substantive way, and that's what's terrifying. Yeah, and and to continue a little bit with with this idea of horror and terror, because. Uh, the 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 book is I, I can't you know say enough good things about it I love it but I, I also really enjoy your podcast as well Horror Vanguard and 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 I, I want to ask you a little bit about that too so what is it about horror specifically that that you love so much that it it kind of lives in both of these worlds in your podcast world and even in your research as well so um, Horror Vanguard is um, is a podcast about radical politics. Um, contemporary uh, critical theory and horror. And it started out of a sense of frustration, really, um, that me and a friend had that a lot of um, a lot of horror criticism, a lot of popular horror criticism was not really engaging with the sort of philosophical and political ideas that underpin horror. And horror as a form is not inherently revolutionary. Horror as a form is, is if it's anything, inherently ambiguous. It can be, in, in some ways, very transgressive, very progressive, uh, very revolutionary, but it can also be deeply reactionary. Um, and what this means is that culturally, its meaning is contested and is worked out in how it's received. So really, the point of the show is to try and connect the, the, the monsters of the screen and, and the fears that we all kind of face with what we what we know as good historicists horror is for horror is about the cultural anxieties of a particular moment really what has dominated the cultural imagination of the last arguably the last century is the 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 degradation of capitalism right the the idea that we exist in a system that is uh fundamentally violent uh that is fundamentally you know uh, marxist writing is full of these in, intensely gothic metaphors you know um, yeah, capital emerges from the ground dripping with blood, Marx says. Uh, it, is, it is by literally by sucking the life out of the body, uh, capitalism, uh, capital accumulates its labor, right? So again, the, the question is, is all of this just, just an aesthetics? Is all of this just a kind of uh, a metaphor or, or a use of language? Or does this in some way connect to the anxieties and fears and, and terrors of what, what we can kind of call the phenomenology of living under capitalism? And so the, the kind of the, 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 the aim of the podcast is to explore the ways in which uh, ultimately the greatest monster of all is, is contemporary capitalism. Um, we are faced with a, with a kind of a great enemy, but we have this, uh, a legacy of 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 horror as as a conceptual uh, and philosophical vocabulary um, to show us w- what do we do with monsters? And what are some of your what are some of the examples of this? Uh, what what kind of monsters or what kind of movies or shows kind of uh, give this language? to 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 you what what are some of the ones that that you particularly like to draw from um well i i think uh in the 80s probably one of the most interesting horror directors is john carpenter um the thing uh, which gives us the great model for contemporary capitalism itself this endlessly plastic malleable um objects that will literally tear us apart this thing which is constantly in transformation that as soon as we think we know what it is it's already shifted um halloween which is just an incredible example of the fundamental libidinal violence that underpins the apparent peace and domesticity of suburbia um i think uh if you if you go further back uh that's covenant uh the cabinet of dr caligari um which was famously written about by the great frankfurt school uh film critic siegfried krakauer 
uh, in their book from Caligari to Hitler. Um, like horror, horror is this populist and very popular cultural form. Um, but it's it's very easy to dismiss it as being people go, oh, it's just a movie or you go, oh, it's just, you know, not everything is political. And, and you go, actually, well, what we find scary is determined by history, right? It's determined by the cultural conditions within which we exist, which absolutely makes it a political question. Um, I mean, another really, uh, really immediate example that comes to mind, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, which is about the, the kind of cultural conflicts of Vietnam War era America, uh, deindustrialization, the relationship between the urban and the rural, uh, this this the the the, the longstanding um, uh, exploitation fear of the the rural other who has degenerated by being outside of civilization too long. None of that is none of that is us reaching or trying to project something onto the text. It's all there. Um, and I think what, what people query about this is that because horror is designed to, it's not just designed to provoke us to thought, it's designed to provoke the body. Something we say on the show all the time is horror wants to do things to your body. It wants to, it, it's, it is almost compulsively obsessed with, with, with the body and what the body can do, what the body might become. Um, but this is not to say that it's empty of thought as well. So uh, uh, as as we joke on the show, um, it is uh, uh, our podcast is about friendship. Ultimately, uh, it's it's about the the great monster that is capitalism, and very occasionally we talk about horror movies as well. Well, I think that's a, a great place to start uh, moving this toward toward the end of our conversation here. But can you please tell my audience where can they go to to learn more about you and learn more about uh, your your current projects as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You can um, you can find me on Twitter at the Liquid Guy. Um, I am the uh, the co-host of Horror Vanguard. Uh, I am also uh, on the Zero Books uh, YouTube channel as the co-host of a show called Profane Illuminations, which is a Gothic Marxist uh, um, uh, show. Uh, and um, you can find uh, my work in um, theology, horror, and fiction, a reading of the Gothic 19th century, and a forthcoming book called Capitalism, a Horror Story. Wonderful. Well, well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so, so much for having me on the show. I hope this has been a fun conversation for people to listen to. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Greenaway. Check out the links in the episode notes below for more information about Jonathan's works and his podcast. And make sure to hit the subscribe and or follow button, leave a kind comment or rating where applicable, and follow me on my social media accounts. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great day. <laughs>